Welcome to The Free Will Show, a podcast that provides a beginner-friendly introduction to free will while also exploring cutting-edge developments on the topic. I'm Taylor Sear. And I'm Matt Plummer. This is our second episode on open theism. We talk with Patrick Todd about the open future, open theist view. Thanks for listening. I'm happy to introduce Patrick Todd, who's a Chancellor's Fellow and Lecturer at the University of Edinburgh. Patrick has written many articles on free will and moral responsibility, including several on freedom and foreknowledge in particular. Uh, he's the co-editor with John Martin Fisher of a terrific volume called Freedom, Fatalism, and Foreknowledge, which was published in 2015 by Oxford University Press. Uh, and that volume has a very helpful introduction to these issue- issues by Patrick and John, which I'd recommend. Uh, and more recently, Patrick has written a book called The Open Future, Why Future Contingents Are All False, which was published earlier this year, that is 2022, uh, by Oxford University Press. Uh, and some of that material f- uh, from the book will probably come up in our conversation today. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, Patrick. Can you start by telling us a bit about yourself, your work, and how you came to be interested in working on issues related to free will? Hi, Taylor. Uh, and yeah, hi, Matt. Thanks so much, first of all, for having me on this podcast. It's uh, super fun to talk to you guys. Um, yeah, thanks for joining yeah, us. So yeah. um, how did I get into this? Um, well, I think from the earliest stages of my interest in philosophy, I was just interested in uh, problems having to do with God and free will, especially uh, the foreknowledge problem. So uh, this problem really troubled me as, um, I don't know, a young uh, theist in high school and early college. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. I think I'm not alone in that respect, right? I mean, this is, mm-hmm. this is a problem that troubled, uh, troubles a lot of, uh, theists. And so, yeah, I, I think, I mean, from the time I was 18, I was really in, you know, interested in this problem and it's maybe one of the core problems that, uh, set me down the path of philosophy. Um, I, mean, I remember being in something like, I think, Introduction to Philosophy, or it might have been my, a second year philosophy class, and a professor mentioned, you know, gave, like gave a quick gloss of open theism, and I was absolutely scandalized. You know, I was like, "What? <laughs> people, people think this, <laughs> this is this is crazy?" But but uh, I was attracted to it from, in a sense, from the start, and thought um, this is really really interesting. So yeah. Uh, been interested in the free will issue for a long time, not just in connection to issues in philosophy of religion, but just more generally. So um, I think maybe I'll end end there for the minute. (laughs) Yeah. This is our second episode on open theism, and our first focused on introducing the view and the reasons for accepting it. We want to dig a little deeper in this episode, and you've introduced a helpful distinction between two versions of open theism, limited foreknowledge open theism and open future open theism, and you opt for the open future version. Could you say a bit about what you mean by saying that the future is open, and then explain the difference between your version of open theism and limited foreknowledge? Yeah, so the the core idea is this, that um, on the limited foreknowledge open theistic view, there are truths about say, what uh, Taylor is going to freely do tomorrow. It's just that for one reason or another, um, God uh, doesn't know them. 
I mean, the standard thing to say there is that God can't know them. It's somehow not possible for God to know them. Um, but the, the, the concession, as it were, that the limited knowledge of open theists is, is making is that, yeah, there are some truths that God doesn't know. Um, the core difference between that view and the open future open theistic view is just that the open futurist just says, look, I mean, where the limited foreknowledge person says that there are truths uh, that God doesn't know, the open futurist just tries to say there are no such truths in the first place, right? So there are just no facts specifying what any genuinely free agent is going to do. And so because uh, um, knowledge implies truth, of course, I mean, God wouldn't know these facts uh, or know these truths. There just aren't any. And so um, this is the kind of sense in which uh, the future is open or is is kind of um, meant to be the sense in which the future is open. There are no truths about uh, uh, indeterministic events. Um, I mean, that's at least a decent first pass of what uh, what. I at least mean by the open future view. So that's the core difference, at least, between the two ideas. Yeah. I've heard some people use this analogy between um, the God not being able to do certain things mm-hmm. and God not being able to know certain things because, uh, for instance, like God can't do things that are logically impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is this kind of analogy, is this something that you think is a helpful analogy? when comparing what God can do and what God can know? Um, I think that that analogy comes up mostly in defense of this limited foreknowledge idea. So some of those people will say, look, I mean, sure, I'm saying that God uh, can't know, or, you know, let's just say doesn't know what uh, Matt, uh, let's say Taylor is going to do tomorrow. But Look, I mean, this is no problem for omniscience because, you know, knowing these truths is impossible. Um, And so it's some kind of way of trying to preserve, if not the letter, the spirit of the doctrine of divine omniscience. Because, look, I mean, you know, these truths are impossible to know. And there might be something to that. Um, I don't think that that's a decent way of preserving um, the doctrine of divine omniscience because, in the end, you still are saying there are some truths that mm-hmm. this being doesn't know. As far as I'm concerned, it, that's the end of the story. This being's not omniscient. Um, it yeah. might not be ultimately a problem that this being isn't omniscient because, you know, you might want to say uh, on reflection, it's not really possible uh, to be omniscient in a context in which there are free agents. And so uh, it's, it's, it is a kind of point in defense of limited foreknowledge open theism. But um, I mean, I think the good news for me is that I, I don't have to say anything. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. So on, on your view, um, God doesn't know what I'm freely going to do tomorrow. Um, but that's not because he's sort of like shielding his eyes and making sure that the, the truth about what I'll do tomorrow Mm-hmm. Um, isn't known by him and th- therefore doesn't sort of take away my free will. But on your view, there's just, there's no truth about what I'll freely do tomorrow. Um, yeah, I think is that right? Okay. Except, except, I mean, you know, I, I'll stick up for the limited foreknowledge folks for a second. I don't think really any of them are super keen to say that God, like, you know, 
as it were, shields his uh, metaphorical eyes. I mean, right. He doesn't have eyes. He doesn't have, I mean, it's, it's just, they're going to say something like this. Um, you know, look, when, when what Taylor is going to do is undetermined, there's nothing on the basis of which God could form a reliable belief about what Taylor's going to do. And for that reason, uh, God is going to have to withhold belief about something mm-hmm. like that. It's not so much that it's like God kind of like, you know, doesn't peek behind the curtain or something. It's, it's like that's that I think is um, maybe not the best thing for them to say. Um, but but right. I mean, I, I think otherwise. Um, yeah, you, you, you nailed it. <laughs> well, turning to your view, I mean, it, it kind of sounds if, if you say there's no um, truth about what I'll do tomorrow, it kind of reminds me of conversations we've had with uh, John Fisher and with uh, Alicia Finch about Aristotle and the sea battle argument. Mm-hmm. Um, it seemed like, I mean, both <laughs> both of our guests referred to different interpretations of Aristotle. We don't need to get into that. But um, how view, how, how's your view similar to Aristotle's where he says there's there's not a truth about whether there will be a sea battle tomorrow if that's, you know, contingent? Um, and maybe if you think you do part ways with Aristotle, could you, could you say how? Yes. Good. Um, I mean, my open future view is, well, uh, it belongs in the long, long tradition of thought stemming from Aristotle's famous discussion of the sea battle tomorrow in, on interpretation nine. So, um, right. I do not, uh, engage in Aristotle, uh, scholarship, but uh, let's just say, as you say, that you know the Aristotelian view is that right now, let's say uh, the claim that there will be a sea battle tomorrow is neither true nor false. That's how you know lots of people have interpreted Aristotle. So in this way, he gives up the principle of bivalence, yeah. which says that um, any proposition is, if not true, then false. Right? True and false are the only two truth values, and any proposition, if it doesn't have one, it's got the other. Um, and the thought is that, okay, Aristotle gives that up um, with regards to future contingents. I mean, a future contingent is going to be a claim about what's going to happen where uh, there are ways things could go from here where that thing happens and ways things could go from here where it doesn't. Okay, that's, I mean, the... Mm-hmm. A rough gloss on future contingent. So, you know, in this kind of way, Aristotle says future contingents are neither true nor false. So my view has a great deal in common with the Aristotelian view. I almost want to, you know, it's like to, to emphasize the differences is almost, you know, like in the scheme of things is uh, maybe to take us down the wrong path, like, you know, because I have much more in common with Aristotle in, or the Aristotelian view in this respect than I would have in common with, say, an alchemist or a determinist or a Molinist or someone like that. So, right. um, but still, there are some key differences. Or, and just, I mean, simply the key difference is that where Aristotle says um, that future contingents are neither true nor false. I just say they're false. Um, so in this kind of way, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to say the gap between the untrue and the false is really not that important. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, if, if you, if you kind of took seriously the idea that these, these claims are as of right now untrue, you know, it's like, it's untrue that there will be a sea battle. It's untrue that, um, there will fail to be a sea battle. If you, if you can kind of get your head around that a little bit, then I'm trying to say, you know, actually there's a, a better view here is just to say that both of those claims are false. So it's false that there will be a sea battle tomorrow. It's also false that there will fail to be a sea battle tomorrow. Um, that's the core difference that I have with Aristotle. And I mean, to, um, I don't know, try to summarize an entire book. I can't <laughs> say that, you know, this view has got a lot of theoretical advantages over um, a view that says that these claims are indeterminate or something like that. We just don't need to revise um, uh, logic in order to right. to go go down this path. Yeah. If you were to give like an elevator pitch for the main reasons why you think they're all false, what would those reasons be? Um, there is no elevator pitch. <laughs> you can't go by the book. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's the horrible truth of the matter. I mean, it, it's a, it's kind of a long slog. Um, I mean, you could look, there are different ways you could go here. I mean, one, one is just that it's like, uh, bivalence seems like a, a decent principle. If you, right. if you had otherwise thought, Hey, bivalence seems like a decent principle. Um, well, I mean, we've reasoned ourselves into the conclusion that these claims aren't true. Why not now just accept that they're false? Um, and then, and then more or less what I'm trying to do from there is just say, actually, uh, objections to that view are completely overblown. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, if, you know, there, there's, there's no compelling argument against the view that they're false. Um, so I mean, one, one, I mean, if there was, if I had to give an elevator pitch, that could be it. But I mean, quickly, Matt, I think broadly speaking, I try to say that this view that, that future contingents all come out false, it, it's sort of motivated by an overall picture of the semantics of will, you know, of, of this, uh, what, what's called, you know, a modal, um, and it, you know, I, I try to develop a, what what I think of as like an independently plausible modal semantics for will, on which will is a kind of, well, I mean, a bit of fancy jargon here, but it's a universal quantifier. And mm-hmm. and once you once you swallow that, then you're going to see that in combination with this open future view, uh, the natural meaning of will is just going to render these these claims false. Um, I mean, there, you know, that's maybe, that was a long elevator ride. How about <laughs> that's great. I guess one quick clarification. So the disagreement between you and then this interpretation of Aristotle, where we give up bivalence about future, at least about these future contingents, um, you could be an open theist, um, with either of those views and you would still count as an open future, open theist, right? And that, so you'd, you'd be disagreeing with other open theists who say that there are truths about the future that God doesn't know. Is that, is yeah. that right? I think that's right. I mean, there, there, there's kind of, um, in the first pass, two camps of open theists, there's, you know, the limited foreknowledge folks and then the open future folks. Um, 
And then within the open future people, now there can be differences in that. There, mm-hmm. there are some of those people who say that um, future contingents are neither true nor false, or you could say future contingents are false. Um, you can also try a, a third thing, um, which I won't try to mention right now, but, but right, then there could be different divisions within the open future. Right. Yeah. Um, Good. Yeah. Thanks. Cool. You have several papers on divine foreknowledge and human free will that critically engage the other positions, especially the dependence response to the, the argument for incompatibilism about free will and divine foreknowledge. Are you an open theist because you see these responses as unsuccessful or because of your view about the openness of the future or something else or maybe a combination? Well, yeah, good question. Um, I mean, why do I like open theism? Um, I kind of, well, I mean, just holding fixed the theism part, let's, you know, it's not, I mean, maybe we, you know, why, why, why be a theist at all? Good question. I don't know. But, uh, but you know, theist hat on anyway. Why be an open theist or why am I attracted to open theism? Um, a couple different reasons. I mean, one, one reason, yeah, is that there's this famous argument uh, or much discussed argument from the last, say, 60 odd years, which purports to show that divine foreknowledge would be inconsistent with human freedom to do otherwise. Um, And I know that you all have had podcast episodes about this argument. Um, And yeah, I mean, that argument strikes me as extremely compelling. It just strikes me as compelling that uh, if an infallible being has beliefs in advance about what Taylor is going to do tomorrow, Taylor's not free to do otherwise because Taylor isn't free to make that being wrong. Um, and so, look, uh, divine foreknowledge is inconsistent with human freedom to do otherwise. Insofar as he thought it's, you know, we do have freedom to do otherwise, or it's important that we we would have such freedom, that gives you some reason to, to go with the uh, open theist type of view. Um, yeah, so that's one direct reason. Um, but then there's this other reason, and I do think that these reasons are, are sort of related. I mean, they, they, they kind of form a, t- a, a picture together. There's a sort of global picture. But, I mean, broadly speaking, the other reason I, I have is just by thinking about the nature of truth and time and explanation. So, you know, I, I'm one of these people who finds it very weird to think that there could be truths about what Taylor's going to do tomorrow when, you know, things right now, together with laws of nature and whatever else you want to add in, you know, things right now don't settle it. It's like, you know, there are ways things could go from here where Taylor, let's say, um, Moses lawn tomorrow, uh, and ways things could go from here in which Taylor doesn't mow his lawn tomorrow. Um, I find it strange that there could just be some primitive fact to the effect that actually, you know, Taylor will mow his lawn tomorrow. I mean, where, where would that fact come from? Um, so I've, I've always thought that's kind of strange. I mean, it's, it's, it would, it's, it's strange to think that there are these truths kind of that float free from what current reality and law dictates. Um, mm-hmm. 
And that kind of motivation is what, I mean, it's what you might consider something like a reductionist type of motivation or like a, a, maybe a desert landscapes sort of motivation. I mean, I kind of have this picture that all, all of these truths about, you know, about what's to come have to reduce to facts about what the present is like and what the laws of nature are like. Um, and so given indeterminism, it's going to follow that there are no truths about things like, uh, well, uh, what indeterministic processes, uh, how they're going to get resolved. Um, so that's my other view is that, you know, just from thinking about the nature of truth. And so like, because I, because I think it would be weird for there to be truths like this. I also think it would be weird if these were known because, um, look, I, I think that there are no such truths. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, earlier you mentioned when you first heard about open theism in college that you were sort of scandalized by it. Do you think um, that accepting open theism and maybe the open future version in particular has any implications for other commitments, whether theological, it seems like that might've been what you were scandalized by then, or maybe, you know, other philosophical commitments. Yeah, I mean, definitely. So, right. I mean, I remember when I heard about this view for the first time, I thought, oh, like, what what could these people be thinking? Because surely this can't be made consistent with, like, any, you know, um, decent interpretation of, you know, Hebrew, Christian, Islamic, you know, scriptural texts and you know, really other, other religious commitments. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I had the, I had probably this reaction. It's like, well, that, that's, that's an extremely fascinating view that can't possibly be one that like, you know, actual theists can endorse. I mean, insofar mm-hmm. as these people are trying, you know, want to be religiously faithful. I mean, you could, you know, maybe, maybe there's like some, like totally, I don't know, like a, feels like a, a philosopher's God type of view, you know, like, but it's, anyway, it's, it's got nothing to do with traditional religion. I mean, that's kind of what I was thinking. Um, eventually, you know, I, I read some people who uh, kind of convinced me that there's at least something to be said for, um, you know, putting, putting traditional religious, uh, conviction together with open theism, but mm-hmm. it didn't strike me as super convincing, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> I, I, thought, I thought, you know what, these, these open theists, like people, I mean, they're kind of bending a lot of these scriptural texts around in all sorts of funny ways, you know, doing, doing a bunch of you know, super creative, too creative theological exegesis of like key religious texts. It all looks pretty, you know, desperate. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I per- personally, I, that's how I looked at it. Mm-hmm. I, I thought, you know what, but the thing is, is that at this point, like everyone is just saying ridiculous things and um, <laughs> You know, is the open theist saying anything more ridiculous than anybody else? I don't know. I mean, um, yeah. So I I, I do think 
it's got some it's, it's definitely got some knock-on effects in I don't know how, how you're going to be able to handle um, well certain certain like authoritative religious texts things that you might you know see in the Bible or um, but I mean more generally of course it's got knock-on effects with doctrine of providence um, how God stands the time I mean whole whole panoply of things to come up so um, yeah I mean happy to discuss any of those further but yeah sidebar I mean I kind of think yeah I, it's interesting to observe that you know open theism doesn't fit so well with you know sacred texts but I don't know. I mean, the other thing you could mention here is like, yeah, you know, open theism is not going to fit well with what you might think of as classical picture, you know, a classical picture of God, mm-hmm. the kind of picture you get in Aquinas um, where God is atemporal, you know, uh, immutable, simple, um, open theism just doesn't really jive with that type of view. Um, and whether you think of that as a cost is sort of a question of your more general philosophical outlook on theism. I mean, mm-hmm. um, so there are some, some things to say there. There's also the problem of evil. I mean, but here you might think that, um, open theism really helps because it's only really going to be on this view that God is going to be creating. Um, and if God is going to create free agents, God can't be doing this in advanced knowledge of precisely what these creatures are going to do. Um, and you might think that if that were the divine predicament as it were, then that would explain or help to explain in some sense, you know, the facts of evil. It's like, look, I mean, um, the world is partly as bad as it is because, uh, you know, to, to create free agents is essentially to take a risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a view that open theists uh, are in good position to accommodate. Mm-hmm. That's helpful to mention. We've already talked a little bit about divine omniscience. Um, So one initial worry that people might have about this version of open theism is that it, it it seems like it gives up omniscience um, since it says that God does not know in advance what people will freely do or what free agents will free will freely do. Uh, What do you make of this worry? do you think that, that we're going to have to give up uh, omniscience if we accept your view of open theism? I think it's pretty clear that no, we don't. I mean, uh, to be honest, I think that this objection, um, it's pretty clear that this doesn't work against the open future view. Uh, It's going to work against the limited foreknowledge view, but the whole idea of the open future view is just to say that there are no truths in the first place. So look, I mean, omniscience is going to imply something like uh, knowledge of every truth or, you know, so, uh, 
if a claim is true, then the being knows that claim. Uh, and yeah, I can plainly accept that. I'm, I'm going to say for any truth, God knows that truth. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the fact that I think that there are less truths than you do might be a kind of problem for me. I mean, maybe maybe, my, maybe that is a ridiculous thing to think, you know, that, that there aren't <laughs> truths of the kind that I'm saying. Maybe that's, a, yeah, a ridiculous view, but uh, it's it would be a mistake to try to criticize that view as giving up omniscience. I mean, right. um, so, yeah, I think it's a totally fair complaint to say, hey, wait, there, like, pre-theoretically, it seems fine to think that there are truths about what Taylor's going to, you know, eat for for lunch tomorrow even you know even assuming that he could he could do something else it's totally get that um but i think that that's independent of the omniscience worry Mm -hmm. yeah going back to that analogy i mentioned before it seems like it fit if we explain it in a certain way it would fit better with your view that well yeah god doesn't know what a square circle looks like either um so would it be the same kind of forcefulness? Like, well, he doesn't know that because it's logically impossible. Is is your argument going to end up with that conclusion that it's logically impossible for God to know thing, these things because they're all false? Well, yeah. I mean, I do think it's logically impossible to know what's false. Um, now, it's tricky because um, let's just take the claim that, you know, uh, Taylor will... Um, have lunch at noon tomorrow. Um, is it logically, uh, in, let's just say, is it, let's say that that is a future contingent. Well, it, it might, it, things might have developed in a different way so that that wouldn't have expressed the future contingent at all. So, I mean, I, I think the, the thing to say here is that, yeah, I mean, it's going to be lo- logically impossible for God to know a future contingent. But um, just because some claim is a future contingent, it doesn't mean that necessarily that claim is a future contingent. Right. Yeah. So um, a proposition that in fact expresses a future contingent at a time uh, needn't have expressed a future contingent at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a sense in which, right, I mean, just because I'm saying that God can't know future contingents, um, it's not... Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not thereby saying it's logically impossible that God know that, let's say, Taylor uh, has lunch for, uh, I'm sorry, uh, lunch at noon tomorrow. Um, had things developed in, in a way that that, w- that wasn't a future contingent, that would have been known by God. Tricky, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Some tricky issues there, Matt. Um, but uh, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll rest there. If, if I can ask about one tricky issue here, or one that maybe isn't that tricky, but it's, it could seem tricky. Uh, it might be that like Matt knows that I'm going to get up and mow my lawn tomorrow and then have lunch at noon. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty regimented. I have a good to-do list. I'm pretty reliable. Uh, I've told Matt about my plans. Um, could suppose that the world's indeterministic. It's not settled now. In, in any sort of deterministic way that I'm going to mow my lawn or eat my lunch at noon. But it seems like Matt could know that, or at least that he could correctly predict that I'll do those things. So what do you make of that? I mean, it seems like it would be a problem if Matt could know something that God couldn't. Um, 
but maybe you'll want to say, I know you will want to say, Matt doesn't really know. It's not true that I'm going to do this thing. So Matt doesn't really know it. Um, good question, Taylor. And yeah, you've kind of anticipated my response. Uh, but let's just say this, that, yeah, I mean, I, I think this is a serious objection to open future, open theism. Um, uh, I mean, well, let me back up. I mean, there's, there's, there is one kind of objection here, which is just that, you know, it, it looks like um, we have lots of knowledge of future contingents. And I'm saying that um, we don't. Okay, that, there is a kind of objection there. I actually think, though, that the, the point that you're, you're raising here is really a point against limited foreknowledge of theism. So they're, they are definitely going to, it looks like, face this type of problem. Mm-hmm. That we, we have knowledge of lots of claims that God doesn't. So, you know, on that type of view, there are truths about what's going to happen tomorrow, um, which are not settled by current reality. And unless you take a hardcore skeptical view, it looks like we're going to know some of those, like, like, like examples that, you know, you mentioned, maybe I I know that my, you know, wife is going to pick me up from uh, the office, you know, by 6 p.m. today. I know that in the normal way, you know, if, and, and so, you know, if we imagine looking from the outside that it, that that's true, only a skeptic is going to say, I don't know it, you know? And so, um, but right. But now the limited foreknowledge open theist is going to say, that's not something that God can know because it's not settled. And now it looks like humans have some knowledge that God doesn't have mm-hmm. um, that, that looks kind of bad i mean what's up with that (laughs) yeah Uh, and yeah i mean i think that there are a couple things that they could say they're kind of uh, you know it's like parallel maybe to what aquinas says about omnipotence in some places where it's like yeah there's a sense in which or sure, sure you know human beings can know things like this but god can't but that's that's, that's somehow because we are deficient in certain ways. Like we are idiots who can take like massive epistemic risks <laughs> and, you know, and things like that. And we believe on faulty evidence and, mm-hmm. and, you know, and so it's because of a defect that we can know in this way. Um, but God doesn't have any defects like that. Okay. Well, whether that's convincing or not, I don't know. But, uh, but right. I mean, the, the hard problem for me is more like I'm just going to have to, straight up deny that, you know, um, if it really is a future contingent that, uh, I forget your example, Taylor, maybe, um, lunch at noon tomorrow, yeah, or mowing the lawn. um, you know, like you have lunch at noon, you know, every week with your colleague at, you know, on Wednesdays, um, like it's, everything is on again. Now, you know, um, I'm just going to have to say, look, I mean, no, you don't. I mean, in, in, insofar as, insofar as, you know, we, we also know right now that it's undetermined mm-hmm. that, there are, you know, genuinely there are some ways things could go from here where you don't get lunch at noon. Then I'm, I'm going to just have to say, well, look, I mean, there's currently no fact of the matter about whether that's what you're going to do. So you don't know. Um, 
Now, I mean, this does, this is weird. I mean, uh, definitely this is, this is, I, I think not how we normally think. Um, and so, I, I mean, in this respect, I just totally accept that the open future view is pretty out of step with ordinary, um, well, in some sense, an ordinary picture of truth and time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a very, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a very revisionary view in lots of ways. Um, and this is just a kind of manifestation of that. It's, it's kind of like saying, like, look, I mean, um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that, like, you don't know, like, I mean, one, one, one way of trying to say, Taylor, that, like, you don't know that you're going to have lunch tomorrow at noon is, like, by starting to raise a bunch of, you know, skeptical worries. Like, well, how do you know you're not going to get hit by a bus? You know, s- stuff like that. Like, right. and I'm not doing that. I'm not trying to be a skeptic, like, oh, you, you know, like, how do you know you're not a brain in a vat, Taylor? You know, like, so you don't really know that, like, you're going to have lunch because, like, you don't even know that you have a mouth. Um, so, so, like, you know, you're, I'm not trying to be a skeptic in the classical way. I'm just saying, actually, there are no truths in this domain. Now, if there were some truths in this, in that domain, I'd be happy to grant that you know them. Um, it's just for whatever, you know, for these reasons, I've tried to deny that there are. Um, it's kind of like a moral skeptic who, who says like, you know, there are no moral facts. And so, you know, look, I mean, if, if you protest, like, but I know that stealing is wrong. It's like, I mean, man, like if there were some moral facts, I'd be happy to grant that that's, that would be one that you knew, but I just, in my, in my ontology, so to speak, I just don't have any of those facts in the first place. So of course I'm going to deny that you know them, not because I'm some weird skeptic guy. It's just because I'm skeptical about these, the existence of these truths. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, but I, I think that the open future view is, is definitely a bit weird on this front. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wonder though. So you think you kind of have to give up the ordinary picture of truth and time, but um Maybe you'll want to say there's something, you know, it's not quite right that it's true that I'll have lunch at noon tomorrow um, or that anyone knows that, right? That, that's not quite right. But maybe you think there's something in, in the way we talk about the future that like something in the vicinity that's right. Like yeah. maybe you'll want to explain why we say, yeah, I know Taylor's going to have lunch at noon tomorrow, but we wouldn't say, oh yeah, I know Taylor's going to like ride a dragon at noon tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've, I've heard some uh, open theists exp- like try to salvage this by uh, talking about probabilities and how God is like a master chess player. And he, given what he knows about the present, he's able to predict with varying degrees of reliability, kind of like, like you're going to wake up tomorrow or, mm-hmm. I do think that that's definitely something open theists should say, because, I mean, I, I would want to say that there are some, some truths about probabilities, um, mm-hmm. probabilities of sea battle tomorrow, probabilities of Taylor having lunch at noon, and God would know those because God's omniscient. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, that's... That I don't think exactly addresses Taylor's worry, though, which is like, look, I mean, just if we just focus on normal conversations, you know, when, when I when I leave my 
weird philosophy office, you know, like probably within six seconds, I'm going to go back to the ordinary way of thinking and talking. Like maybe my wife is going to call me and I'll be like, look, I'll be home in like 20 minutes. Um, or like, don't worry. Like the, you know, the, the train does, you know, the train will leave in like two hours. We've got plenty of time. Um, so I'm just going to like blithely assert all of these claims. Like, um, Oh yeah. Like, well, my mom will be here, you know, over Christmas. So like, don't, you know, this is not okay. And now what if Taylor like followed me out of up here and then like, and then, like, you know, it was like, pause, wait a second, Patrick, you just said like, you're, you know, you're, we'll, we'll be here. Like what you just said by your own lights is false. You know, um, what do I have to say for myself? I mean, this is the problem that I address in the final chapter of my book. It's, you know, it's all, dealing with what I'm calling the assertion problem. And here my response is basically just like, yeah, you got me. Like um, I said something that's probably false, um, but who cares? Like I, I, it doesn't matter. Um, like why? Because, you know, although in, in, in this kind of way, I mean, it might be that I'm asserting what's false, but I'm still communicating what's true. Um, and I think that it's it's fine that we um, we few open futurists, you know, like me, and I can probably name like four other people who believe this uh, kind of crazy view. Um, you know, I don't I don't think it's incumbent on on us to like inflict our you know crazy metaphysical view on the world and try to like always make sure to never you know talk about what you know what will happen except for when like the laws of physics you know separated. it's like that, that would just make for an impossible way of like operating in the world and i don't think that that's you know morally required of us so I, i'm just happy to be like yeah i mean i don't care like i i'm i probably assert things like this that are false all the time um but look i mean these these false assertions do nevertheless convey truths and that's why my practice is still appropriate mm -hmm. yeah do you think there are any other kind of big objections or challenges either for your view about the open future or for open theism um yeah maybe pick one and say how you'd respond to it yeah i mean so good i mean i i, I kind of think of open theism as you know, it's like the conjunction of theism and then the open future view. Um, well, I mean, let's just let focusing on open future, open theism. Right. Anyway. Um, so one, one sort of thing to push or, you know, note is just, yeah, I mean, how, how can the open theists make sense of traditional religious doctrines, things like like to me, to me, I just think, yeah, open theism is like a super religiously revisionary picture of things. It's not clear how it's going to make sense together with divine revelation, if you believe in that. And I think, yeah, that's a tough project. Um, but philosophically, I mean, I think that the primary objections... Um, well, 
in some sense, each I try to deal with them as best I, as I can in, in the book that I've, I've published. Um, but you know, the, the the primary objections are just to try to overcome the, this this feeling that first of all, there's something logically incoherent about this view, and second, something practically incoherent. So so. It's, it's a view that, you know, is so out of step with how we practically live our lives that we can't believe it. Um, I think that neither of those two problems are really decisive in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's no simple matter, let's just say, uh, <laughs> right. those, uh, those objections. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's a fascinating area and one that... Um, as far as I can see is, well, see here, I'm about to assert a future contingent. (laughs) I just, uh, (laughs) yeah. I mean, I slipped back in exactly to the mode that, you know, I think is perfectly fine, but before you even left the philosophy office, office. (laughs) that's, you know, it's so hard to, to kind of, I mean, well, like I said, there's just no reason to, to, to try to regulate yeah. speech in this way. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think a, you know, th- this topic is one that is only growing. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it's been around for a long time, but it's still one that is not going away and is, uh, well, promises to, um, well, keep keep exciting people and keep vexing yeah. some time to come. So. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, this has been great, Patrick. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us. If uh, our listeners want to check out more of your work, where can they go to find what you're working on? Um, thanks. Uh, two places. One is my Phil Papers profile. Um, if you just search for Patrick Todd and, and Phil Papers, I I keep that up to date. The other thing is my website, uh, patricktodd.co, and yeah, those two places. Great. Cool. Yeah. Thanks again, Patrick. Thank you very much for having me. It's been super fun. Thank you. In our next episode, which will be the final episode of this season, we'll talk about the view that accepts not only that freedom and foreknowledge are compatible, but also that freedom and causal determinism are compatible. Our guest will be Greg Welty, professor of philosophy at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. <laughs>